Our second reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. For I will pass through, closer, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The word of the Lord. There's a question that we often ask younger kids. It's what do you want to be when you grow up, right? It usually has to do with like, I want to become this sort of a career type thing in their head. As adults, we tend to not ask that. What do you want to be when you grow up? You've already grown up, so you've already become something. Um, but, but in America, you don't have to stay what you've become. You can reinvent yourself. Many of you who are of the younger generation don't know that Robert Downey Jr. reinvented himself. He was a down-and-out of Hollywood drug addict who became Iron Man and reinvented his entire career through that persona. Um, many of you older people do not know that Miley Cyrus was once th the gentle little Hannah Montana and decided to reinvent herself in another way. The Jonas Brothers took a hiatus and not so much reinvented themselves but reintroduced themselves now as married guys, not just teenagers playing music. And for some reason, a guy named Keanu Reeves is still popular and in movies, even though he never really reinvented himself. He's still the same guy that he was back in the 80s and 90s, which everyone thought, well, he doesn't have much talent. He's just kind of this you know, actor who plays the same role. And he still does it, and he's still popular. 
Sometimes you don't have to reinvent yourself, but all of us feel the need to continually work on ourselves, to better ourselves. So we wanna become better people, whatever that is. We're defining that by a better body or eating more healthy, better health. We wanna better ourselves in our career. We're always kind of trying to advance in some way. We want to get better. And of, of course, like the self-help sort of talk stuff, the magazines, the shows, will also talk about you becoming your best self, the best version of you. And when you hear that phrase, the best version of you, it basically means imagine what you want to become and then become it. It's in your hands. You can become whoever you want to be. This is America. So imagine something and then you grab it. It's all in your hands. But what about becoming who you were made to be? That your best self is not what you imagine. It's not reinventing yourself in your own image, but becoming the person God created you to be, God made you to be. Over the past few weeks, we've been in the story of Exodus, and the story of Exodus is, by and large, the story of Israel's freedom from slavery. It is an exodus out of Egypt, right? It is freedom from slavery, but it's not just being released from slavery. It is also the story of the people of Israel becoming God's people, becoming who he made them to be, who he promised they would be. He had an idea of what they could become that they could never have imagined when they were in slavery in Egypt. So it wasn't just setting them free. It was setting them free to become his worshiping people, his people in the land that he had given them. And it all begins on Passover. The Passover story is the story of Israel's beginnings. It's their Independence Day, their 4th of July. It's the revolution that began the nation and the people of Israel. But it's also a very unsettling story. It's a unique and disturbing act, night of judgment and deliverance, where God redeems Israel, setting them free to become his people. So let's dig into the passage and see what it's saying, what it says to us, and how it points ahead to Christ as well. So in chapter 12, we just had this read, we get the, the layout of the story of Exodus. I'm going to begin in chapter 12, verse 12. God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And then a little bit later on, Moses, verse 21, calls the elders of Israel, and he says to them, here's what's gonna happen. Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the door frame, basically, of your house. And stay in the house until morning, for the Lord, verse 23, will pass through the land to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And he goes on to talk about observing this same practice in future generations. This story is absolutely terrifying if you actually thought about it. God Almighty says to Moses, this night I'm going to come and bring death in every household. And what happens that night, if you read on in verse 29 to 32, I'm not going to read it, but go ahead and put it up. At midnight, the Lord comes through 
and strikes down all the firstborn in the land. Every firstborn son or firstborn male animal is killed that night. And a great cry comes out of Egypt because at the same time, there is death in every household that does not have the blood on the door. And Pharaoh, who's been so hard of heart and unrelenting, finally says, up, go, go out. You and your families and your herds, go and serve Yahweh. Just bless me. Just go, get out of here. We cannot have you here because we are next and we know it. And then there's this declarative end to the whole sequence in uh, verse 40 and 41 where it says that Israel was in Egypt for 430 years. For over 400 years. Hundreds of those years in slavery. Generation after generation after generation of slavery. And they are finally free. You know, at the very beginning of the story, uh, God tells Moses this night will be the beginning of months for you. And all the commentators note this. If you were a slave in Egypt or a slave in the ancient, you know, in old America, you did not have a, a weekend. You worked every single day. So it wasn't like what week is it, what month is it? It's just today where you work all day and tomorrow is the next day that you work all day your entire life until you die and your kids do the same thing. There was no ordering of months. It was every single day. There was no weekend. There was no day off. And God says, no. This is going to be the beginning of months for you. Time is now going to begin because I am setting you free. But he sets them free through this horrible act of death. We have to ask, why does God bring the death that he does? He states it in verse 12, which we just read, It's, I am bringing judgments on all the gods of Egypt. So he brings the death to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, and in order to redeem, set Israel free so that they can go out of Egypt. It's the final act that it causes Pharaoh to relent, to finally be like, all right, I've had enough, guys. Go. Up until then, all the things that had happened, the hail and the darkness and the Nile turned to blood, all these things like locust, he, he had been hard-hearted and said, uh, uh, your God's not strong enough. I'm not relenting. I'm basically Lord of this whole land. Finally, he gives in. So it's a final act of judgment that allows, that causes Pharaoh to relent and send Israel out. But it also seems a little bit um, harsh to kill the firstborn son. Modern people, all of us, should actually have an issue with it. Most people, if you tell them this story, just be like, I, I don't like this, the way this plays out. This, this firstborn son, which has to include children, babies, maybe adult sons as well, any within the household, the firstborn son die. And it sounds like a very vengeful God. And, and there's some sense in which that's what's happening. God is giving retribution to Egypt and to Pharaoh. I mean, think about it. Early in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, the previous Pharaoh, orders that all the sons of the Israelites be thrown into the Nile, killed. It's genocide. So it's almost like God saying, all right, you want to kill all the babies of the Hebrews? I'm coming next for you. And in a sense, God also says in chapter 4, in this warning at the beginning before the plagues come, 
Pharaoh, you have not let my firstborn, the people of Israel, go. Therefore, I will one day take your firstborn. So it seems as if vengeance is going on here. But there's something a little bit more that I think is going on that we're going to pull through by looking at a bunch of different passages. And it's the nature and role of the firstborn in the ancient world and what God is doing in this final plague that gives us insight into our own issues and what God wants to do for us in Christ. In Exodus 13, in a couple of different passages, God says to set aside, consecrate the firstborn. So throughout the land of Israel and throughout the times even up to Jesus, any uh, firstborn animal had to be slaughtered or a substitute killed in its place. And when you had a first son, you had to pay a price or sacrifice an animal in order to redeem or pay the price of your firstborn son. Firstborn sons or firstborn children were for some reason set apart in that ancient world. God says they are mine. They are mine. There's some role that they play in, in the way that God is claiming them as his own. And we get another little bit of insight into it in another famous passage of an almost death of a firstborn son in the story of Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham gets this promise in Genesis 12 that he would one day have a nation. He would one day have a people. He would have a land. He would be this great father of many. But for decades, he has no children. And eventually, late in life, he has a son named Isaac by his wife, Sarah. And as the son grows up, he gets this this word from God that says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, this is worse than the story of the Passover. It is horrific and unthinkable. But the interesting thing is Abraham doesn't respond that way. Abraham doesn't say, well, of course that can't be God. Nor does Abraham say, how about you take one of my servants instead? Or my wife, Sarah. Something in Abraham knows that this is fitting and right in some way that is very hard for us. Why does Abraham not think that this is out of the realm of what God might do? It has to do with their understanding, his understanding of human sin and the place of a firstborn son in the ancient Near Eastern world. Behind Abraham's thinking is first the story of sin of Adam and Eve, right? In Genesis 2, in Genesis 3, God says to, to Adam and Eve, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then, chapter 3, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and they do not die. And they die spiritually, and we know one day they will die, and there's eternal separation from God because of sin, but they don't die right then. So in a sense, Abraham has inside of his head the judgment that's on all humanity. What Paul lays out very clearly in Romans when he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wage or the payment we owe for our sin is death. On top of this, Abraham and anyone in the ancient world lived in a collectivist society, not individualistic. So basically, we think of our sin as our own sin, right? And anybody else's is theirs. But in that ancient world, 
you actually didn't think of your own sin as separate from your family's, and your family's sin is separate from you. So we might think, oh, that's just my uncle. He's a problem. But in that ancient world, if your uncle was a criminal, was a sinner, a known sinner, if you would, right, it brought shame on the entire family. Your siblings, your children, anything that anyone did brought either honor or shame on the entire clan. Your sin or somebody else's sin was not just their own. It was also everyone's in the family unit. It's how they understood it. So Abraham is suggesting that like all of our sin deserves to be paid for. Any one of us and it could be paid by any one of us. And so when God comes in and says, I'm going to take your firstborn for all of your sin, he says, okay, I sort of get it. And on top of that, there was a specific place in the ancient Near East that a firstborn son had. That ancient Near Eastern world valued family, and it was built on a patriarchy, right? So head of household was a man. And his son, his firstborn son, would take over as the head of the whole clan when he died. Everything passed through him. The entire identity of everyone, all siblings, all family, all servants, anybody who worked for this family, all was built through the head of the household, which was a man and his son. They overvalued, overvalued sons, men, and firstborn sons. And they wanted to maintain a place of status and honor in their, in their community. It was built around the place that the firstborn son and the patriarch held. They looked at their firstborn son and saw the entire identity of the family tied to it. Whether you were a man or a woman, single, married, whoever the oldest son was, it was like, it's all tied to him. All of their future hopes, their existence, their identity was bound up in that person. So what happens when you do that to a person? You make them to become your God. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, that was the case with firstborn sons. Some of us do something similar with our children. We're desperate for our kids to be happy, successful, for our kids to love us. We need their approval. We need them to have an easy life. Many people move to Vienna by, by sacrificing something else. Like, you used to live in Capitol Hill. You used to live in Clarendon. You used to be cool. And then you had kids and moved to Vienna. You sacrifice your coolness for the sake of your kids growing up in a great community. But kids, firstborn sons, or fifth children, or any boys or girls, make terrible saviors. Why? Did Abraham allow, even kind of follow through on the possible death of his son Isaac? Because he saw that his sin and any sin in his family deserved death. Somebody had to pay. And he also saw that God was saying to him, who or what is your God, Abraham? Do you worship Isaac, your only son, your firstborn, or do you worship me? And of course, within that story is that great and challenging passage where Isaac is walking with his father and says, Father, I see that we have the wood and I see that we have the knife, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice as they're walking up to the mountain? And Abraham says, with faith in God's nature, the Lord will provide. 
And the Lord did provide a ram caught in the thicket that was sacrificed as a substitute for Isaac, a ram that God provided. So all of this is the backdrop to what's happening on Passover. God Almighty brings a final plague of judgment on Egypt and on her gods, on the things that that she worships. The people all worshiped their firstborn sons. And the death of the firstborn would have fallen on every household unless they obeyed God, slaughtering a lamb and putting the blood on their doorposts. As one preacher put it, in every home that night, in every home that night, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. The choice was whether you trusted and obeyed God or not. And so through that, God delivers Israel out. And from that time on, he called them to sacrifice a lamb and do this whole thing called a Passover meal, right? So some of you have celebrated one of those either because you're Jewish or were in your background or have celebrated with a friend of yours who is. A a Passover meal is is a reenacting of that first Passover. It involves uh, certain things like lamb. Nowadays, they don't sacrifice a lamb, but in Jesus' day, they would have sacrificed a lamb at the temple. You had these particular herbs and bitter things. You had unleavened bread. You had wine. All these things were a part of a Passover meal reenacting that night when, when you came out of Egypt. We shoot off fireworks to say, hey, it's the 4th of July. They sacrificed lambs and had wine. It's very similar. The whole thing by the time of Jesus had this this ritual to it that everyone knew. It involved uh, the the presider of the family sitting at the table and all the foods laid out and one of the children in the ancient world, it would have been a son, says, why are we doing this this night? And the father would then lay out, here is why we are doing this. Many years ago, our forefathers were slaves in Egypt, but Yahweh came and brought deliverance that night and they would go through this whole ritual back and forth question and answer, explaining what had happened. By Jesus' day, the Jews knew all the words and the parts by heart. And on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus sat at table with his disciples in a Passover meal, except Jesus gets everything wrong. He changes the words, he misses some of the parts, And he rolls with it like this is exactly how it's supposed to be. He says that we read in Matthew 26, take, eat, this is my body, as he's holding up the bread. And then he takes the cup, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And you think the disciples are like, no, no, that's the unleavened bread that we had to bake, and the the, the wine is the wine of this and that. And Jesus says, no, this is my body, this is my blood. My blood, not that of a lamb a thousand years ago. My blood on the doorframe of your life. Several commentators note that what's missing in all the gospel accounts of the Last Supper is what would have been central in that first Passover. There's no lamb. There's bread, there's wine, but there's no lamb. And whether there was actually no lamb or just the gospel writers don't want us to see, kind of omit it on purpose, the point is that Jesus is saying, yeah, there's no lamb because I am the lamb. This is my body, this is my blood, and I am the lamb. 
In Isaiah 53, the prediction 700 years before Jesus of a Messiah coming was that he would suffer for his people like a lamb led to the slaughter. And in John chapter 1, at the very beginning, John the Baptist says, looking at Jesus, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus accepts it. He is the lamb at the center of this Passover. And not only that, Jesus is also the beloved son. In the first Passover, it was firstborn sons who were killed or spared because of the lamb. In Matthew 4, God Almighty says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And in John 3.16, Jesus himself says, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I am the firstborn son of the father who dies for you. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the Passover. I am the firstborn son. I am the substitute lamb. Under my blood, you're covered. Because of my death, you can be set free. In this sense, that first Passover points to and anticipates the gospel. And we get this even just from the very basic beginning part, which is at that original Passover, right, there was a death sentence for sin on every household. You can almost imagine when all the Jewish elders were gathered together and and Moses comes in and says, okay, guys, here's what's going to happen tonight. Um, The angel of death is going to come through and kill the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians. But if we take the blood of a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, God will pass over. And you can imagine like a very religious Jewish guy listening to that saying, that's great. God's coming to smite. He's going to smite those Egyptians. They deserve it. They have been evil. They have been slaveholders. I've been a faithful man seeking God, loving my family. He's going to smite them, and they deserve it. But the death sentence was not just on the Egyptians. It was on all, all people, all people in the land. From Pharaoh to the slave girl, from the highest to the prisoner and criminal, it would have fallen on Egyptians or Hebrews the death sentence would have fallen on anyone who did not obey God. That was absolutely mind-blowing in that ancient culture where social status, being a pharaoh, being a king, or ethnicity, being Hebrew, not Egyptian, or being Egyptian, not Hebrew, determined where you were going. Your ethnicity, your social status determined if you were in, it meant God was going to bless you and had blessed you. That's why you were on top. That's why you were the right ethnicity. But Passover says no to status or ethnic bigotry or any sense that I'm better than you. That first Passover says it's not the good and the religious who are safe and the bad are doomed. It's not the Hebrews who are safe and the Egyptians who who are going to get hosed in the end. It's all of us are out, but anyone can come in under the blood of the Lamb. Anyone willing to trust and follow Yahweh will live. Anyone who ignores him will die. We become who we are made to be 
through the blood of the Lamb. You know, our natural identity, we've talked about this, our natural identity, our gospel identity, our kingdom identity, our natural identity is who you've become because of how you've built your life. It's what you've built your life on. And in a sense, you build your life on something. All of us do. Some sense of where we get our identity from. Comparing it to that ancient world, it's, it's our firstborn. Our firstborn son. It might not be your firstborn son that you worship, but you worship something. Because every one of us has something that gives us meaning and purpose and identity. Whether it is our career or romantic love or friends and being liked by others, our kids being happy, safety and security, power, praise, whatever we're after. It's what we prioritize in our life. It's what we'll sacrifice for. But the problem is whatever it is that is central to our identity, if it is not God, will enslave us. It will become something we have to give more and more to. And you're never quite sure you've done enough. If you make career the thing you're after, you can never get to a high enough point in your career to be satisfied. If kids are, are what you live for, you will find that if your kids reject you or move away, it will be incredibly shattering. Not just sad, but shattering to you. Your identity is gone. Build your life on anything but God, and it will enslave you. Any firstborn does not set us free, but will capture and fail us. Our gospel identity is not what we make of ourselves. It's who we are because of what Christ has done for us. Your gospel identity is how God sees you. It's actually the real you. The real you is not your career. It's not your academics. It's not how people think of you. It's not having a girlfriend or boyfriend. It's not even being liked by your friends. It is how God sees you, what he says about you. And it's not based on what you do or have done, It's not based on degrees or success or goodness or how many times you've shown up at a church service. It's only based on Christ and your trust in him for how you measure up. The gospel tells us everyone is out. Every one of us deserves to die. But through Christ, any of us can come in and have life. The Passover points ahead to the gospel that Jesus declares in that last supper, pointing ahead to the life that we can have in Christ. N.T. Wright, a bishop and scholar, said this, it's interesting how Jesus didn't teach his disciples a theory of his death. He gave them an act to perform, a meal to share. Every week we come to this table And what we're doing here is not something magical. You know, the blood of the lamb was not magical. It was the promise of God and Israel's faith in that promise that made the difference. But what we do here is come together as the people of God, equally condemned, but equally able to be forgiven by the blood of Christ. The thing is, you actually have to do something. You have to take, eat, right? Take, drink, or dip and drink, whatever that is. You have to do something, which is receive the gift that God gives you. That's what we do physically every week. But spiritually, emotionally, mentally, it's what God calls us to as well. 
Let Christ fill you. Not your kids, not your spouse, not success, not being liked and accepted. Let Christ fill you. Receive him as your only source of hope and a future. The Passover tells us, the gospel tells us, something is going to die for sin. Either the lamb or you. But if your trust is in Christ, it's all you need. The blood of Christ is the only way out of our slavery and death. It's the only way into true and eternal life. And it's the only way to become who we are made to be. Let's pray. God, our Father, in the death of the firstborn and the protection through the blood of the Lamb, you pointed ahead to what you did in Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see where we have bowed our knee and given our hearts to other firstborn sons, to things besides you as the source of our identity and our hope and our future. And give us the ability to give them up for the sake of your son, trusting in his blood and his death, the lamb who was slain for us. In his name we pray, amen.